Welcome to Digging In with ONN. We are your hosts, Kavita and Yami. This is a podcast that discusses public policy and systems change with a focus on decent work. We use an intersectional lens that centers learning around truth and reconciliation, racial justice, and equity practices. We want to acknowledge that ONN's office is located on the unceded territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat First Nations. We know that many of our listeners are calling in or tuning in from different areas of Ontario. And we want to encourage you to learn whose land you're on, not only as a form of solidarity in terms of acknowledging the first people and land, but also so that you can connect, build relationships, uh, practices of reciprocity to do better and move towards the calls to action, the 94 calls to action around truth and reconciliation, as well as other calls to action within your respective communities. We are so incredibly excited today to have Dr. Vidya Shah joining us to be talking about BIPOC leadership within the nonprofit sector, ways that we can lean into practices of embodiment to do better, to fail better. I am super privileged to be working with Dr. Vidya Shah with the neighborhood centers and other nonprofits around BIPOC leadership competencies, which as any project shifts and change as we go and learn more and do more in that developmental phase. But we're really excited to get into some of what we know already around BIPOC leadership, some of the dimensions and how it intersects and interconnects uh, with decent work and practices of decent work as that are central to this project. And so welcome, 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 Dr. Vidya Shah. If you don't mind taking a moment to introduce yourself uh, to our listeners, your entry point into this work, would love to hear it. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here, Yami and Kavita. This is such a, a beautiful opportunity to be in conversation with both of you about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I want to begin by just sharing that uh, I identify as uh, first and foremost my 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 mother's daughter, my father's daughter, uh, who brings I bring with me histories um, from around the world. My father, having uh, been born in Zanzibar, uh, East Africa, his parents from uh, Gujarat, India. My mom uh, being born uh, in Trinidad and Tobago with her, uh, my great great grandparents having come from India to Trinidad and Tobago as uh, indentured, indentured servants. And so working through histories of colonization on both sides and identifying as a settler here, a second generation uh, on Turtle Island. Uh, my parents met here and I've had the, 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 the absolute privilege of being able to live and learn um, and grow uh, on, on land that is not, uh, that is not my, my native land. And so mm-hmm. uh, really happy to be here in conversation with both of you. I identify as South Asian or Brown. I'm a woman, um, cisgender and straight and, you know, a professor in a faculty of education. And so with all of these intersecting pieces to my identity, it 
allows me to continue thinking about how I come into this space, what race and racism and racialization mean to me uh, from my particular location, uh, and also thinking about all of the continued work that I need to do to unsettle uh, practices, taken for granted assumptions, uh, harm that I may enact uh, because of where I am located. So thank mm -hmm. you so much, both of you, for having me here. Thank you so much. Thank you for such a meaningful and thoughtful introduction to yourself and, and how you're coming into this yeah. space. Let's, let's dive right into the questions. Thank you for that lovely introduction. So as a researcher um, and a professor um, at York University with a focus on we know that you have an amazing podcast and leading, which we will tag um, in the resource section. Um, and also that you're doing work around BIPOC leadership within the nonprofit sector. Maybe let's actually start by defining what is leadership? How do we define it? This was the hardest <laughs> question for me to answer. I have to be honest. That's a good question. <laughs> You thought we were going to start you off what? easy, but. <laughs> but, you know, I think one of the things that makes this question so important and difficult to answer is that there isn't a clear definition as to what leadership is. And each of us come into this with such different understandings of what it means. And in fact, there are so many people that hear the word or the term leadership and are, you know, running in the other direction because from how they have understood and been socialized into leadership, they want nothing to do with it. And yet to me, those are some of the greatest leaders that we have in our presence. And so I think about, you know, what actually is leadership? And you you, mm. you mentioned the Unleading podcast, and that's actually how we started is because we couldn't answer this question. Mm. And so instead, we asked ourselves the question, well, what isn't it? What are ways that we've been thinking about it that have been mm -hmm. so harmful that we can actually lay that down and make space to imagine something else? So the main question of that unlike, uh, the Unleading Project uh, podcast series is what might it mean to undo and unlearn practices and ideas that promote hierarchy, individualism, compliance, power over, silence, and a culture of fear? Because we knew that that's what we didn't want it to be. And yet so many of us have experienced leadership in those ways. I'd say as well, you know, part of part of the work of, of figuring out what leadership is, is troubling the taken for granted assumptions that we have that reinforce the status quo and also engaging in conceptions of leadership that actively disrupt that status quo. And so this means that we are centering the experiences and knowledge systems and leadership approaches of the global majority, right? And this includes Indigenous people, Black and African diasporic people, uh, people of color, or racialized people, and all of the intersecting uh, and, and often marginal identities that, 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 that come with that. You know, I think about, I spoke about my mom at the beginning of this podcast and my, and, and my dad, and, mm -hmm. and so much of my understanding of leadership is watching them. And nobody would ever theorize that as leadership. Nobody would ever call that leadership. Mm. But I watched how my mother navigated the school system. I watched how my father has navigated uh, the workplace as, um, you know, as a, as a South Asian man. And I, I watched how they have done this. And to me, these are such beautiful examples of what leadership means that nobody would ever code as leadership. Nobody would ever call leadership. But to have to survive in a system in which the status quo is actively working against you is, in my opinion, one of the greatest aspects of, of leadership. 
So I'm really interested in what it means to redefine uh, leadership, to be responsive to sociopolitical realities. Um, I'm really interested in reclaiming uh, ways of knowing around and being around leadership and imagining future possibilities around leadership. So I, you know, I, I distinguish between a leader and leadership. I think a leader is someone who is respected and trusted, who, who influences and connects people, but who also decenters themselves in service to something greater, mm. who is willing to take the greatest risks, who is the most courageous and acts with the greatest integrity, um, but is also someone that's leading for future generations while honoring lessons of the past. Uh, someone who's continuously unlearning and learning and developing their capacity to love. I think for me, that's such an essential part of leadership that we develop our capacity to love. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, I think leadership itself is more than any one individual. It is more than any one time. It is intergenerational and it is collective. And it's actually the spaces in between the ideas that we have, the structures that we hold, people, the more than human. It's all of that. It's that network of relationships that to me constitutes leadership. The longer we do this podcast series, the <laughs> one takeaway for me in almost every episode is that a longer list of things yeah. to unlearn, mm -hmm. you know, and how do we keep reimagining the problematic <laughs> concepts that we are currently upholding in our own lives, but also, you know, as a larger yeah. collective so as you say we need to redefine leadership in a way that's not causing mm -hmm. harm and perpetuating that harm so yami i see you as a leader in the nonprofit sector and i'm very grateful for all of the different ways in which you help me grow and i would love to hear how you define or undefine <laughs> leadership or leaders if you want to make that distinction Ooh, thanks so much kavita for that question yeah. so um i'm smiling profusely because um I'm thinking about a conversation that we were in, a dialogue that we were in last last Thursday video around the term leadership and just following everything that you said. Um, I've been become more and more increasingly curious about what how leadership exists on the axes of being a steward or a community weaver or a mentor that's like lateral rather than hierarchical as you as you spoke to, um, thinking about the different competencies. And ONN um, has done work around leadership, and we'll link the resource below. And um, what was interesting in, in, the, in, in the work that we did is the different ways in which leadership can be defined and, you know, as Vidya said, undefined, and how there is often a rejection in video, we can speak to this, you know, of leadership because of its links to colonial legacies of white supremacy, that top-down approach that I'm going to feed you information. And I love when you talk about your, you know, your lineage and your family and the way that leadership is, is guidance, it's care, it's love, you know, and I think these are frameworks that we often don't feel really comfortable 
in talking about within the nonprofit sector, um, and especially from like a decent work lens, it's like, what does it mean to center love as a leader? It means to listen deeply. It means to know that we don't have all of the answers. And so similar to you, I think I know I'm not clear on what leadership is, but I know what it isn't. And I know that leadership and, 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 being able to center BIPOC leadership means that we're also centering practices of embodiment, that we're connecting with one another in, in solution building, right? That we see the humanity in one another um, rather than just focusing on policies and practices um, and, and some sort of end goal, right? Because we never truly know. And so I think to that, that's what I would add to, to videos already amazing, you know, breaking down of, of what leadership looks like and can look like. Um, and I want to invite the listen, listeners to think about the different possibilities of, of what leadership means to you and how you define it um, within the context of your work. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Yemi. Uh, so Vidya, back to you. Based on your experience and research, what do we know about BIPOC leadership in the nonprofit sector? And what are the trends that you've been noticing? Yeah, you know, another great question. <laughs> you know, I think I think this applies to both nonprofit and beyond. Um, my work is largely with school districts, and we're seeing many of the similar trends there. And you know, the first trend is that there are simply very few BIPOC leaders. And uh, and 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 when I say BIPOC, I, I want to be really clear that the that the the B, the I, the POC, you know, such, such different lived experiences. And, and I find it hard at times mm -hmm. to sort of, um, uh, group that, that all those differences, uh, in, in one term. But I will say that there are few black leaders, there are few indigenous leaders, and there are few racialized leaders or leaders of color that are, that are doing mm -hmm. this work. Um, and that the, you know, there, there's, for those that are doing the work, there are such tremendous invisible demands on their time, on their energy, whether it's informal mentorship um, that happens sort of behind the scenes or in parking lots or on the phone mm -hmm. at, on the weekend, uh, the burden to have to represent all fill in the blank group, uh, which is a tremendous burden that we have to carry. Um, navigating, navigating whiteness. And, you know, when I say whiteness, I don't, I don't mean white people. I mean, the, the, the logics and the, um, uh, the structures, structures and the, the ideas and the ways of thinking that, that make the experiences and perspectives of white people normal and everyday, right? So that's what I mean by, by, by whiteness, which is different from white people. Having said that, um, I could, you know, as a South Asian person, uh, I, I'm constantly navigating my my alignment to whiteness and what that means and, and thinking about how to mm -hmm. divest from that in, in, in many ways. Um, and so, you know, all these invisible, all these invisible demands on us. I would also say, though, that, you know, there is this expectation, especially in a hierarchical system, that the higher you go up in that system, there's greater expectation to align to whiteness. And I define that in relation to who is protected in that organization and who is punished in that organization. And we know time and again that, you know, for leaders uh, that are pushing against the status quo, that are asking questions, that are demanding change, that are doing the work that we say we are committed to, they're often punished. 
And we know that for those that are simply making the organization look good, you know, for optics or for, you know, whatever purpose, they are often protected. And that happens in all kinds of bodies. Um, but the expectation to have to align to whiteness in a body that is also harmed by whiteness is a very, very um, almost impossible place to be in. There was a, a, an article that I'm, that I'm writing with some colleagues, and it's called The Impossibility of Leading While Black and Brown, right? And it, is, it speaks to the ways in which there are different metrics for uh, different groups of people, the ways in which there are different expectations, the ways in which we are expected to align, the fact that, you know, on the one hand, that we're always navigating harm, that on the one hand, it's either harm that's going to be done to communities if we don't act, or harm that's done to us if we do act, yeah. or harm that's done. To, so we're constantly having to navigate different levels and orientations of harm. And what a horrible position to have to be. It you feels know? So like a lose-lose, right? Instead yes, of a win-win. Yes. It's yes, you're either exactly it. upholding the whiteness and the white structures, or... You know, it, there's just no, there's no winning. So in a system that is so steeped in whiteness, the only option for anti-racism is lose-lose, right? And and this is, this is my challenge with, for example, mm. you know, like EDI positions where you bring somebody in, uh, there's all this excitement that, you know, change is going to happen and, um, you know, you get to put this person on a poster and tweet about the fact that, you know, you have a little mm-hmm. melanin in your group and everyone's all excited and then you, we get to this place where, you know, the person starts asking questions or starts doing needs assessment or starts doing scans and notices that there are issues. And all of a sudden, as we start to raise some of these challenges, you see how quickly that person becomes demonized, um, that they have to push and challenge. And there's, and then when there is an acceptance by the organization of, you know, the pushing and the questioning, the organization then owns it as though they've always known this. <laughs> oh, as though they've always been talking about this. So this this sort of piece happens or the person gets pushed out, right? One one of these things happens. So it's this is uh in in many organizations where an anti-racist and anti-oppressive approach isn't central to everything. When it's siloed into a particular p- person or role or position or even a small department, um it is extremely difficult for black and indigenous and racialized leaders that are committed to anti-racism and anti-oppression to do their work. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting with that. I'm sitting with that reality that you just shared of um, the desire to hire, you know, whether it's an EDI position or an executive director or a manager into you know, into a position and and the infrastructure that is needed and the competencies, forgive me, I know this is a very complex word in the sense that it, it elicits a lot of emotion when we talk about, you know, competencies around le- leadership. But, you know, the it makes me think around the decent work conditions that are needed for leaders. Again, you get to define what leader is. We could be talking about executive directors to frontline workers and we're complexifying it. But the realities that leaders in this work face um, around tokenism. And it makes me think of that uh, image from Coco um, in in Montreal of, you know, you hire somebody, you hire that executive director, they try to make change and then there's pushback. And like you said, they eventually leave. And so... 
Um, on that, on that vein, I'm curious a bit about, um, what is needed, you know, what is needed to, to make those transitions? Is it competencies? Cause I know there's a deep conversation around BIPOC competencies, um, to support BIPOC leaders and all of the intersectional social locations. Um, and I'm going a little bit off script here, but like, what is what is what is truly needed in terms of for all intents and purposes we'll say competencies or skills or you know throw out other uh, other words that are necessary that you that that you feel align with you that can support a shift in culture you know i'm curious about that i'm really really curious and no definitive answers, of course, but what, what do you think? In part, it's some of what I've shared in that, mm-hmm. in that we have to see justices as intersectional, right? There mm-hmm. has to be this commitment that, um, you know, we are, we are thinking about, we are thinking about racial justice because it's often the form of identity that gets most uh, ignored uh, and erased mm-hmm. and um, made invisible. But we can't understand that without without intersecting pieces, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, you were such a great teacher for me the other day. So I want to, I want to just acknowledge that. And, and thinking about the fact that, you know, we need to actually support leaders in developing a racial literacy. This isn't mm-hmm. something that you just, you know, get, you know, it, it, you have to learn it. You have to reflect on it. You have to act, you have to try, you have to come back, you have to make mistakes, you have to learn from it. And so this racial literacy piece is around understanding ourselves as raced beings. You know, I often, mm. when I'm doing workshops with, um, with, with various folks on, on leadership, I'll ask them, when is the first time you knew that you, that, that you had a race? When is the first time that you knew you were raced in some way? And often for people, you know, for 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 black leaders and for indigenous leaders and for racialized leaders, it was a moment of pain. It was a moment of some sort of, you know, experience of exclusion. But it's also really interesting to ask white folks that because, yes, white is an identity and and, and we, we want to, you know, understand the fact that um Something came to be in your understanding of what it meant that you were raised often in relation to someone else. But I think it's also as part of this racial literacy, important to think about how structural racism operates. Like it's important to actually learn that. It's important to learn the ways it operates institutionally and ideologically and interpersonally and in internalized ways. You know, I often use that sort of a framing to think about how, how oppression operates. And also, most importantly, um, and this is out of research I've done with some uh, leaders in various school boards, is an understanding of how whiteness operates to maintain itself, right? Again, coming back to these issues of protection and punishment. So how does whiteness operate to maintain a norm, to maintain a standard? And if we can have a greater um, greater literacies around that. And this is for all leaders, right? This can't be the burden of folks that are already being harmed by, by various mm-hmm. forms of racism. Um, this is what, this is what needs to happen. And then the practice of literally building in this awareness into our conversations, into experiences of, um, maybe uh, racial affinity caucus spaces, maybe uh, mm. opportunities, as you were saying, Yami, for healing and for, for, for deep sort of cross-racial solidarity work for, um, but also into our, 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 our policies and structures. And because either way, if we only take the sort of individual healing approach, 
what we leave out are the structures and systems that give rise to that kind of healing in the first place. And then if we only take the approach of structures and policies, then we mm. don't actually shift uh, how we're coming to this work. There, there, it's, it's, it's not based in relation. It's not based in actually changing our critical consciousness around this work. And so um, I think all, all three of those pieces are needed. Mm-hmm. And so, Yami, based on, you know, what Vidya is describing, how or do you see any of this come to life in our sector? You know, are you seeing any of these spaces being created and this work being done, whether on an individual level or a structural level? Um, Yeah, I think, and Vidya, we talked a bit about this Um you know, two weeks ago or so when we connected um, about the podcast that um, we're seeing more and more leaders connect with practices of embodiment um, and thinking through the personal. Um, and it and for some in the sector that that feels foreign in the sense of what does it mean to connect with our spirit? What does it mean to connect with our lineage? What does it mean to connect with our emotions? And NVIDIA had shared the work of Prentice Hemphill, a somatics practitioner, to get aware of how our body responds to, um, you know, conflict, uh, to get clear on how we can get comfortable with being uncomfortable and also complexifying that notion for BIPOC leaders who are in a consistent state of discomfort. And so I think that some of those 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 trends are really showing up in the sector where there is a desire to you know when folks are coming to the table to look around and say well who's not here right but also saying does it need to always be executive directors that are around the strategy tables can we think about ways to integrate mm-hmm. frontline workers around racial justice and equity because they're the ones that are interacting with clients they're the ones that are often interacting um, with community members and and have you know a closer pulse um and also and nvidia i'm curious about this this often divorcing of like the community to leaders as though black leaders are not also part of community or racialized leaders or indigenous leaders have not also used services or have not also you know engaged Mm -hmm. in those ways so yeah i'm curious about your thoughts on that i think that in so many ways yami what you're speaking to makes me think about how leadership, when predefined through, as you were saying earlier, sort of uh, settler colonial uh, and white supremacist, log- white supremacy logics, what that does to us, right? It mm-hmm. it it suggests that we are separate from community, that there's no such thing, because mm-hmm. you know, if mm-hmm. historically that may have actually been the case, where where there were entire True. communities <laughs> that that are being served, and the leaders are not part of those communities, but if we shift. Mm the understanding of who is a leader, then we recognize that that one of the, you know, it's it's often seen as such a deficit, through, through such a deficit model that we're going to hire more, uh, you know, Indigenous leaders, Black leaders, uh, racialized leaders, because, you know, we just have to, you know, for optics, essentially. But what actually that means is that you have competencies there that are have never been acknowledged, like mm-hmm. spanning, you know, border spanning, right? You you have folks mm. that are have a foot in community and a foot in an organization or a foot in an organization of, and a foot in the academy. And so you have people that are sort of spanning multiple locations. And what a brilliant place to be to be able to 
shift knowledges, to acknowledge the tremendous knowledge that is in communities that is often goes completely, un, you know, ignored. And also to your point about embodiment, you know, so much of mm-hmm. how we've been socialized into leadership is that it's just this rational, linear, you know, yes. talking, walking heads. Mm-hmm. And the, mm-hmm. it's like from our neck down, we're, we're, we're completely cut off. And that doesn't mean anything about, about our leadership. But when we center the body and when we center the spirit, it makes, it makes, um, place and space for such different ways of thinking about, uh, about leading in ways that challenge a single, knowledge system in ways that recognize that intergenerational trauma lives in our bodies and all of our bodies. I think of the work of Resma Manakam who talks about white body supremacy, right? And and, and practitioners, mm. like you said, of Prentice Hemphill, who who allow us to be in a space when we're when we engage the body, we recognize more and more that there's no such thing as like the leader and the follower or the oppressed and the oppressor, or mm. it blurs all of those lines. So we are simultaneously, as Prentice says, harmed and harming. Mm-hmm. And that knowing in our body is a very different kind of experience than that knowing in our minds. Mm. It allows for a kind of fundamental shift and transformation that can only happen when we've engaged our full selves and we can be able to bring more of our full selves to the space. So to me, the ability and the commitment to healing is a leadership competency. And I know that that word competency, as you were saying earlier, <laughs> Yavi, is so, such a tricky word. Such a tricky word. It's a bit loaded. But it, it, <laughs> I think as well, when we challenge what is a competency, you know, we don't want all things being competencies. I, I don't want somebody who, you know, is um, only rational. I, I don't see that as a competency. But if we if we can shift the power that the word competency has had, I think that there are orientations, that there are um capacities that there are and even all these words can also be very tricky as well but there's mm-hmm. something to be said about the 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 ability and the commitment to healing as an ongoing life journey that is central to leaders that are able and willing to make space and and really to be able to open their hearts more and more um to ways in which it's been closed prior mm-hmm. Kavita, can I deep connection actually between leadership and healing and decent work, um, which is something that we haven't really dove into in, in, in other episodes, this notion that healing can actually be an access of social change. I think that one of the things that healing does, uh, and healing, maybe I should start by saying, can have such sort of negative connotations attached to it, right? But healing allows us to access the parts of ourselves that are free, that are loving, that are humane, that are loved, loved and loving. Um, That's what healing does. And I don't know how we create a world that is decent if we don't feel decent. If we don't understand what it feels in our body to uh to experience the, the 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 joy and the liberation and the freedom that we are working towards how do we actually do that in a way that doesn't repli- replicate the very systems of oppression that we're trying to work against and i think that so much of how we need to be thinking about this and seeing this is that we want folks and all folks 
to practice and to experience what it means to be the kind of worlds that we are trying to create, to be freedom, to be love, to be humanity. We can't just talk about this. If it's not experienced in our body, we are, that's, it's what we're, what we're quote unquote fighting for is something else, but it's not that. And so I think so much of, of, of decent work needs to be centered in the ability to experience ourselves in that way, to be held with that kind of love and compassion, to be, to be in relation to each other, to honor that in each other. We have to practice that in our bodies so that we can actually have a fighting chance of making it a reality out there. There are going to be a lot of leaders in the sector that are wanting to embed decent work practices, that are thinking about decent work and are champions and are also thinking about systems change. Um, and, you know, this conversation has really highlighted the fact that leadership is complex. There's no singular, there's competencies and there's a complexities in how we can view competencies and understand them. But one that we really need to lean into is healing um, and the praxis of healing to be able to move the work forward around decent work practices. And so to conclude, wanted to ask any last words to the sector, any your top three things that you would say for folks that are um, interested in engaging with how BIPOC leadership can enhance within their organizations or their white leaders thinking about systems change. What are three things that you want the sector to walk away with in terms of learning? You know, I'll, I'll start with where you left off with our last question with the healing, um, that while healing is central uh, and creating conditions for healing to happen is central to, to decent work, to racial justice work, to all the intersections of that. Um, we heal so that we can act. That's another Prentice gem, right? Mm. Um, we heal yes. so that we can act and organize. <laughs> and this is, this is not uh, an individualized approach to healing. This is healing that happens in community. This is healing that happens as collectives. And it's healing that happens so that we can change systems, so that we fortify our inner, our, our inner space to be able to change systems. So I, I want to just sort of, um, sort of put in that caveat. The other thing I'd say is that it's really important for leaders of organizations to recognize the tremendous toll uh, that is taken on, um, on, on, on Black leaders at every level of the organization. And I hate to even frame it as levels, uh, but unfortunately, that's how so many organizations are run. But at, in, in every space, uh, Black leaders and in communities, uh, Indigenous leaders and in communities, racialized, there's so much harm that's being done that we have to navigate on a daily basis. And that needs to be believed, that needs to be acknowledged. Um, and for all of the extra labor that comes with that, there needs to be some recognition uh, and value, both in terms of time or, or monetary value, that, is un that understands that we're actually doing more work. We're actually doing more work and hard work um, to be able to move these pieces forward. And the last thing I, I would say is that, you know, there has to be a willingness to give up power. To recognize that, uh, you know, as a white leader in an organization, you might not be the best person to lead the organization. Uh, and that's a hard thing to say, and that's a hard thing to hear. 
But I think it's really important for us to recognize that what this is actually about is shifting power dynamics. And that means the willingness and the ability to give up power, to give up this idea, to, to give up fantasies of what uh, Vanessa Andriotti speaks of as fantasies of certainty or fantasies of comfort or fantasies of uh, closure, right? That we want to give up power. And in doing so, that means that we're going to be in spaces that are um, that are uncertain, that we might define as being in crisis, that we might define as being uncomfortable. And all of those spaces are actually extremely generative spaces that can be used to shift the way that we think and live and be and lead. There's some truth telling there that I think is really powerful. And Yemi, before we sort of wrap up, I just want to turn to you one more time and you know, there are a lot of different tables that you uh, virtually or physically <laughs> um, sit at and a lot of different spaces it, that you occupy. And I'm curious, you know, what have you seen or experienced to be effective ways in which organizations can uh, support BIPOC leaders and BIPOC leadership? I definitely think just to echo Vidya's point around compensation for time and energy and the black and uh, the breaking ceilings um, or the glass cliffs report by movement building, which we'll link below. They talk about the disproportionate labor. So a white ED and a racialized ED are both getting paid 80K, but it's not the same amount of labor to do racial justice work. So what are compensation models, and I'm talking to boards in this context, look like? Um, you know, I think when it comes to healing, it, again, you know, um, like echoing Vidya's point, what does it look like to create the spaces for your staff in policy and in practice? I'll leave it there and just thank you so much for, for joining us, for being in dialogue with us. Um, for working through all the tech issues. <laughs> really, really appreciate um, you taking the time. And it's such a joy to to have spoken. And I know, Kavita, you, you, you probably enjoyed yourself as well. And, and so for folks who are interested in your work, maybe if you could just share where they could find you. Um, I know we're going to link the Unleading podcast, but any other points of contact that they can connect with you at? Sure. So I, if you just Google Vidya Shah York University, you'll see my uh, profile that comes up there and my email is there. And so I, I look forward to hearing from folks. And I want to just take a moment, uh, Yami and Kavita, to say to both of you, uh, a huge thank you for, for the invitation to be here today in conversation and also for the tremendous work that I know that you're doing and for the barriers that you are up against in your work that are seen and unseen for continuing to do such amazing work. Uh, huge, huge, uh, huge gratitude and admiration for both of you. Thank you. I'm going to cry. Thank you. We need to wrap this up before I start crying. Um <laughs> <laughs> So thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Shaw, for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode. We're your hosts, Kavita and Yami. We hope that you'll join us for future episodes as we keep digging into the issues that matter to the nonprofit sector. Make sure to share, rate, and subscribe so you're the first to know when new episodes are live.